Chapter One, Part Two of Tales from Sketches by Boz. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Lazarus. Sketches by Boz by Charles Dickens, illustrated by George Cruikshank. Chapter One, Part Two of Tales. Well, said little Mrs. Tibbs to herself as she sat in the front parlour of the Coram Street mansion one morning, mending a piece of stair carpet off the first landings. Things have not turned out so badly either, and if I only get a favourable answer to the advertisement, we shall be full again. Mrs. Tibbs resumed her occupation of making worsted lattice work in the carpet, anxiously listening to the tuppenny postman who was hammering his way down the street at the rate of a penny a knock. The house was as quiet as possible. There was only one low sound to be heard. It was the unhappy Tibbs cleaning the gentleman's boots in the back kitchen and accompanying himself with a buzzing noise in wretched mockery of humming a tune. The postman drew near the house. He paused. So did Mrs. Tibbs. A knock, a bustle, a letter, post paid. T.I. presents Compte to I.T., and T.I. begs to say that I see the advertisement, and she will do herself the pleasure of calling on you at twelve o'clock tomorrow morning. T.I. as to apologize to I.T. for the shortness of the notice but I hope it will not inconvenience you. I remain yours truly, Wednesday evening. Little Mrs. Tibbs perused the document over and over again, and the more she read it, the more she was confused by the mixture of the first and third person, the substitution of the I for the T-I, and the transition from the I.T to the U. The writing looked like a skein of thread in a tangle, and the note was ingeniously folded into a perfect square, with the direction squeezed up into the right-hand corner, as if it were ashamed of itself. The back of the epistle was pleasingly ornamented with a large red wafer, which, with the addition of divers ink-stains, bore a marvellous resemblance to a black beetle trodden upon. One thing, however, was perfectly clear to the perplexed Mrs. Tibbs. Somebody was to call at twelve. The drawing-room was forthwith dusted for the third time that morning. Three or four chairs were pulled out of their place, and a corresponding number of books carefully upset in order that there might be a due absence of formality. Down went the piece of stair-carpet before noticed, and up ran Mrs. Tibbs to make herself tidy. The clock of New St. Pancras Church struck twelve, and the foundling, with laudable politeness, did the same ten minutes afterwards. St. Something else strung the quarter, and then there arrived a single lady with a double knock, in a pelisse the colour of the interior of a damson pie, a bonnet of the same, with a regular conservatory of artificial flowers, a white veil, and a green parasol with a cobweb border. The visitor, who was also very fat and red-faced, was shown into the drawing-room. Mrs. Tibbs presented herself, and the negotiation commenced. "'I called in conquests of an advertisement,' 
said the stranger, in a voice as if she had been playing a set of pans pipes for a fortnight without leaving off. Yes, said Mrs. Tibbs, rubbing her hands very slowly and looking the applicant full in the face. Two things she did on such occasions. Money is no object whatever to me, said the lady. So much as living in the state of retirement and obtrusion. Mrs. Tibbs, as a matter of course, acquiesced in such an exceedingly natural desire. I am constantly attended by a medical man, resumed the police wearer. I have been a shocking Unitarian for some time. I indeed have very little peace since the death of Mr. Bloss. Mrs. Tibbs looked at the relic of the departed Bloss, and thought he must have had very little peace in his time. Of course she could not say so, so she looked very sympathizing. "'I shall be a good deal of trouble to you,' said Mrs. Bloss. "'But for that trouble I am willing to pay. I am going through a course of treatment which renders attention necessary. I have one mutton chop in bed at half-past eight, and another at ten every morning.' Mrs. Tibbs, as in duty bound, expressed the pity she felt for anybody placed in such a distressing situation, and the carnivorous Mrs. Bloss proceeded to arrange the various preliminaries with wonderful dispatch. "'Now mind,' said the lady, after terms were arranged, "'I am to have the second-floor front for my bedroom?' "'Yes, ma'am.' "'And you'll find room for my little servant Agnes?' Oh, certainly. And I can have one of the cellars in the area for my bottled porter. With the greatest pleasure, James shall get it ready for you by Saturday. And I'll join the company at the breakfast-table on Sunday morning, said Mrs. Bloss. I shall get up on purpose. Very well, returned Mrs. Tibbs in her most amiable tone, for satisfactory reference had been given and required, and it was quite certain that the newcomer had plenty of money. It's rather singular, continued Mrs. Tibbs, with what was meant for a most bewitching smile, that we have a gentleman now with us who is in a very delicate state of health, a Mr. Gobbler. His apartment is in the back drawing-room. The next room? inquired Mrs. Bloss. The next room, repeated the hostess. Oh, how very promiscuous, ejaculated the widow. Well, he hardly ever gets up, said Mrs. Tibbs in a whisper. Law! cried Mrs. Bloss in an equally low tone. And when he is up, said Mrs. Tibbs, we never can persuade him to go to bed again. Dear me, said the astonished Mrs. Bloss, drawing her chair nearer Mrs. Tibbs, what is his complaint? Why, the fact is, replied Mrs. Tibbs, with a most communicative air, he has no stomach whatever. No what? inquired Mrs. Bloss, with a look of the most indescribable alarm. "'No stomach,' repeated Mrs. Tibbs, with a shake of the head. "'Lord bless us! What an extraordinary case!' gasped Mrs. Bloss, as if she understood the communication in its literal sense, and was astonished at a gentleman without a stomach finding it necessary to board anywhere. "'When I say he has no stomach,' explained the chatty little Mrs. Tibbs, "'I mean that his digestion is so much impaired, and his interior so deranged, that his stomach is not of the least use to him. In fact, it's an inconvenience.' "'Never heard such a thing in my life!' exclaimed Mrs. Boss. "'Why, he's worse than I am!' "'Oh, yes,' replied Mrs. Tibbs, "'that's certainly. 
She said this with great confidence, for the dams and police suggested that Mrs. Bloss, at all events, was not suffering under Mr. Gobbler's complaint. "'You have quite incited my curiosity,' said Mrs. Bloss, as she rose to depart. "'How I long to see him!' "'Well, he generally comes down once a week,' replied Mrs. Tibbs. "'I dare say you'll see him on Sunday.' With this consolatory promise, Mrs. Bloss was obliged to be contented. She accordingly walked slowly down the stairs, detailing her complaints all the way, and Mrs. Tibbs followed her, uttering an explanation of compassion at every step. James, who looked very gritty, for he was cleaning the knives, fell up the kitchen stairs and opened the street door, and after mutual farewells Mrs. Bloss slowly departed down the shady side of the street. It is almost superfluous to say that the lady whom we have just shown out at the street door, and whom the two female servants are now inspecting from the second-floor windows, was exceedingly vulgar, ignorant, and selfish. Her deceased better half had been an eminent cork-cutter, in which capacity he had amassed a decent fortune. He had no relative but his nephew, and no friend but his cook. The former had the insolence one morning to ask for the loan of fifteen pounds, and by way of retaliation he married the latter next day. He made a will immediately afterwards containing a burst of honest indignation against his nephew, who supported himself and two sisters on a hundred a year, and a bequest of his whole property to his wife. He felt ill after breakfast and died after dinner. There is a mantelpiece-looking tablet in a civic parish church setting forth his virtues and deploring his loss. He never dishonoured a bill or gave away a halfpenny. The relict and sole executrix of this noble-minded man was an odd mixture of shrewdness and simplicity, liberality and meanness. Bred up as she had been, she knew no mode of living so agreeable as a boarding-house, and having nothing to do and nothing to wish for, she naturally imagined she must be ill, an impression which was most assiduously promoted by her medical attendant, Dr. Wosky, and her handmaid, Agnes, both of whom, doubtless for good reasons, encouraged all her extravagant notions. Since the catastrophe recorded in the last chapter, Mrs. Tibbs had been very shy of young lady boarders. Her present inmates were all lords of the creation, and she availed herself of the opportunity of their assemblage at the dinner-table to announce the expected arrival of Mrs. Bloss. The gentleman received the communication with stoical indifference, and Mrs. Tibbs devoted all her energies to prepare for the reception of the valedutinarian. The second-floor front was scrubbed and washed and flannelled till the wet went through to the drawing-room ceiling. Clean white counterpanes and curtains and napkins, water-bottles as clear as crystal, blue jugs and mahogany furniture added to the splendour and increased the comfort of the apartment. The warming-pan was in constant requisition, and a fire lighted in the room every day. The chattels of Mrs. Bloss was forwarded by instalments, First there came a large hamper of Guinness stout, and an umbrella, then a train of trunks, then a pair of clogs and a bandbox, then an easy-chair with an air-cushion, then a variety of suspicious-looking packages, and, though last not least, Mrs. Bloss and Agnes, the latter in a cherry-coloured merino dress, open-work stockings, and shoes with sandals like a disguised columbine. 
The installation of the Duke of Wellington as Chancellor of the University of Oxford was nothing in point of bustle and turmoil to the installation of Mrs. Bloss in her new quarters. True, there was no bright doctors of civil law to deliver a classical address on the occasion, but there were several other old women present, who spoke quite as much to the purpose, and understood themselves equally well. The chop-eater was so fatigued with the process of removal that she declined leaving her room until the following morning, so a mutton-chop, pickle, a pill, a pint-bottle of stout, and other medicines were carried upstairs for her consumption. "'Why, what do you think, ma'am?' inquired the inquisitive Agnes of her mistress, after they had been in the house some three hours. "'What do you think, ma'am? The lady of the house is married.' "'Married?' said Mrs. Bloss, taking the pill and a draught of Guinness. "'Married? Impossible!' "'She is indeed, ma'am,' returned the Columbine. "'And her husband, ma'am, lives—he—he he, he lives in the kitchen, ma'am, in the kitchen.' "'Yes, ma'am, and he—he—he—the housemaid says he, he never goes into the parlour except on Sundays, and that Mrs. Tibbs makes him clean the gentleman's boots, and that he cleans the windows too sometimes, and that one morning early, when he was in the front balcony cleaning the drawing-room windows, he called out to a gentleman on the opposite side of the way, who used to live here.' "'Ah, Mr. Carlton, sir, how are you?' Here the attendant laughed, till Mrs. Bloss was in serious apprehension of her chuckling herself into a fit. "'Well, I never,' said Mrs. Bloss. "'Yes, and please, ma'am, the servants give him gin and water sometimes, and then he cries, and says he hates his wife and the boarders, and wants to tickle them.' "'Tickle the boarders?' exclaimed Mrs. Bloss, seriously alarmed. "'No, ma'am, not the boarders, the servants.' "'Oh, is that all?' said Mrs. Bloss, quite satisfied. "'He wanted to kiss me as I came up the kitchen stairs just now,' said Agnes indignantly. "'But I gave it to him, a little wretch.' This intelligence was but too true. A long course of snubbing and neglect, his days spent in the kitchen and his nights in the turn-up bedstead, had completely broken the little spirit that the unfortunate volunteer had ever possessed. He had no one to whom he could detail his injuries but the servants, and they were almost of necessity his chosen confidants. It is no less strange than true, however, that the little weaknesses which he had incurred, most probably during his military career, seemed to increase as his comforts diminished. He was actually a sort of journeyman Giovanni of the basement story. The next morning, being Sunday, breakfast was laid in the front parlour at ten o'clock. Nine was the usual time, but the family always breakfasted an hour later on Sabbath. Tibbs enrobed himself in his Sunday costume, a black coat and exceedingly short, thin trousers, with a very large white waistcoat, white stockings and cravat, and blucher boots, and mounted to the parlour aforesaid. Nobody had come down, and he amused himself by drinking the contents of the milk-pot with a teaspoon. A pair of slippers were heard descending the stairs. Tibbs flew to a chair, and a stern-looking man of about fifty, with very little hair on his head and a Sunday paper in his hand, entered the room. "'Good morning, Mr. Evanson,' said Tibbs, very humbly, with something between a nod and a bow. "'How do you do, Mr. Tibbs?' replied he of the slippers, as he sat himself down and began to read his paper without saying another word. 
"'Is Mr. Wispottle in town today, do you know, sir?' inquired Tibbs, just for the sake of saying something. "'I shouldn't think he was,' replied the stern gentleman. He was whistling the light guitar in the next room to mine at five o'clock this morning. "'He was very fond of whistling,' said Tibbs, with a slight smirk. "'Yes, I ain't,' was the laconic reply. Mr. John Evanson was in the receipt of an independent income, arising chiefly from various houses he owned in different suburbs. He was very morose and discontented. He was a thorough radical, and used to attend a great variety of public meetings, for the express purpose of finding fault with everything that was proposed. Mr. Wisbottle, on the other hand, was a high Tory. He was a clerk in the Woods and Forests office, which he considered rather an aristocratic employment. He knew the peerage by heart, and could tell you off-hand where any illustrious personage lived. He had a good set of teeth and a capital tailor. Mr. Evanson looked on all these qualifications with profound contempt, and the consequence was that the two were always disputing, much to the edification of the rest of the house. It should be added that, in addition to his partiality for whistling, Mr. Wispottle had a great idea of his singing powers. There were two other boarders besides the gentleman in the back drawing-room, Mr. Alfred Tomkins and Mr. Frederick O'Bleary. Mr. Tomkins was a clerk in a wine-house, he was a connoisseur in paintings, and had a wonderful eye for the picturesque. Mr. O'Bleary was an Irishman, recently imported. He was in a perfectly wild state, and had come over to England to be an apothecary, a clerk in a government office, an actor, a reporter, or anything else that turned up. He was not particular. He was on familiar terms with two small Irish members, and got francs for everybody in the house. He felt convinced that his intrinsic merits must procure him a high destiny. He wore shepherd's plaid inexpressibles, and used to look under all the ladies' bonnets as he walked along the street. His manners and appearance reminded one of Orson. "'Here comes Mr. Wisbottle,' said Tibbs, and Mr. Wisbottle forthwith appeared in blue slippers and a shawl dressing-gown, whistling de piasse. "'Good morning, sir,' said Tibbs again. It was almost the only thing he ever said to anybody. "'How are you, Tibbs?' condescendingly replied the amateur, and he walked to the window and whistled louder than ever. "'Pretty air, that,' said Evanson, with a snarl, and without taking his eyes off the paper. "'I'm glad you like it,' replied Wispottle, highly gratified. "'Don't you think it would sound better if you whistled it a little louder?' inquired the Mastiff. "'No, I don't think it would,' rejoined the unconscious Wispottle. "'I'll tell you what, Wispottle,' said Evanson, who had been bottling up his anger for some hours. "'The next time you feel disposed to whistle the light guitar at five o'clock in the morning, I'll trouble you to whistle it with your head out of the window. If you don't, I'll learn the triangle. I will buy—' The entrance of Mrs. Tibbs, with the keys in a little basket, interrupted the threat, and prevented its conclusion.' Mrs. Tibbs apologized for being down rather late. The bell was rung, James brought up the urn, and received an unlimited order for dry toast and bacon. Tibbs sat down at the bottom of the table, and began eating watercresses like a Nebuchadnezzar. Mr. O'Bleary appeared, and Mr. Alfred Tomkins. The compliments of the morning were exchanged, and tea was made. 
"'God bless me!' exclaimed Tomkins, who had been looking out at the window. "'Here, Wisbottle, pray come here, make haste.' Mr. Wisbottle started from the table, and every one looked up. "'Do you see?' said the connoisseur, placing Wisbottle in the right position. "'A little more this way, there. Do you see how splendidly the light falls upon the left side of that broken chimney-pot at number forty-eight? "'Dear me, I see,' replied Wisbottle, in a tone of admiration. "'I never saw an object so beautiful against the clear sky in my life,' ejaculated Alfred. Everybody except John Evanson echoed the sentiment, for Mr. Tompkins had a great character for finding out beauties which no one else could discover. He certainly deserved it. I have frequently observed a chimney-pot in College Green, Dublin, which has a much better effect, said the patriotic O'Bleary, who never allowed Ireland to be outdone on any point. The assertion was received with obvious incredulity, for Mr. Tomkins declared that no other chimney-pot in the United Kingdom, broken or unbroken, could be so beautiful as the one at number 48. The room-door was suddenly thrown open, and Agnes appeared leading in Mrs. Bloss, who was dressed in a geranium-coloured muslin gown, and displayed a gold watch of huge dimensions, a chain to match, and a splendid assortment of rings with enormous stones. A general rush was made for the chair, and a regular introduction took place. Mr. John Evanson made a slight inclination of the head. Mr. Frederick O'Bleary, Mr. Alfred Tompkins, and Mr. Wisbottle bowed like the mandarins in a grocer's shop. Tibbs rubbed hands and went round in circles. He was observed to close one eye and to assume a clockwork sort of expression with the other. This had been considered as a wink, and it has been reported that Agnes was its object. We repel the calumny and challenge contradictions. Mrs. Tibbs inquired after Mrs. Bloss's health in a low tone. Mrs. Bloss, with a supreme contempt for the memory of Lindley Murray, answered the various questions in a most satisfactory manner, and a pause ensued, during which the eatables disappeared with awful rapidity. "'You must have been very much pleased with the appearance of the ladies going to the drawing-room the other day, Mr. O'Bleary,' said Mrs. Tibbs, hoping to start a topic. "'Yes,' replied Orson, with a mouthful of toast. "'Never saw anything like it before, I suppose,' suggested Wisbottle. "'No, except the Lord Lieutenant's levies,' replied O'Bleary. "'Are they at all equal to our drawing-rooms?' "'Oh, entirely superior.' "'Cat, I don't know,' said the aristocratic Wisbottle. "'The dowager, marchioness, of public cash, was most magnificently dressed, and so was the baron, Slappenbackenhausen.' "'What was he presented on?' inquired Evanson. "'On his arrival in England.' "'I thought so,' growled the Radical. "'You never hear of these fellows being presented on their going away again. "'They know better than that.' "'Unless somebody pervades them with an appointment,' said Mrs. Bloss, "'joining in the conversation in a faint voice. "'Well,' said Wisbottle, evading the point, "'it's a splendid sight.' "'And did it never occur to you?' inquired the Radical, who never would be quiet. "'Did it never occur to you that you pay for these precious ornaments of society?' "'Certainly has occurred to me,' said Wisbottle, who thought his answer was a poser. "'It has occurred to me, and I am willing to pay for them.' "'Well, and it has occurred to me, too,' replied John Evanson, "'and I ain't willing to pay for them. And why should I? I say, why should I?' continued the politician, laying down the paper and knocking his knuckles on the table. 
There are two great principles. Demand a cup of tea, if you please, dear, interrupted Tibbs, and supply. May I trouble you to hand this tea to Mr. Tibbs, said Mrs. Tibbs, interrupting the argument and unconsciously illustrating it. The thread of the orator's discourse was broken. He drank his tea and resumed his paper. If it's very fine, said Mr. Alfred Tomkins, addressing the company in general, I shall ride down to Richmond today and come back by the steamer. There are some splendid effects of light and shade on the Thames. The contrast between the blueness of the sky and the yellow water is frequently exceedingly beautiful. Mr. Wisbottle hummed. Flow on, thou shining river. We have some splendid steam vessels in Ireland, said O'Bleary. Certainly said Mrs. Bloss, delighted to find a subject broached in which she could take part. "'The accommodations are extraordinary,' said O'Bleary. "'Extraordinary, indeed,' returned Mrs. Bloss. "'When Mr. Bloss was alive, he was promiscuously obligated to go to Ireland on business. I went with him, and rarely. The manner in which the ladies and gentlemen were accommodated with births is not creditable.' Tibbs, who had been listening to the dialogue, looked aghast and evinced a long inclination to ask a question, but was checked by a look from his wife. Mr. Wisbottle laughed, and said Tomkins had made a pun, and Tomkins laughed too, and said he had not. The remainder of the meal passed off as breakfast usually do. Conversation flagged, and people played with their teaspoons. The gentlemen looked out at the window, walked about the room, and when they got near the door, dropped off one by one. Tibbs retired to the back parlour by his wife's order to check the greengrocer's weekly account, and ultimately Mrs. Tibbs and Mrs. Bloss were left alone together. "'Oh, dear,' said the latter, "'I feel alarmingly faint. It's all very singular.' It certainly was, for she had eaten four pounds of solids that morning. "'By the by,' said Mrs. Bloss, "'I have not seen Mr—what's-his-name yet. Oh, Mr. Gobbler?' suggested Mrs. Tibbs. "'Yes.' "'Oh,' said Mrs. Tibbs, "'he is a most mysterious person. "'He has his meals regularly sent upstairs, "'and sometimes don't leave his room for weeks together.' "'I haven't seen or heard nothing of him,' reported Mrs. Bloss. "'I dare say you'll hear him to-night,' replied Mrs. Tibbs. "'He generally groans a good deal on Sunday evenings.' "'I never felt such an interest in one in my life,' ejaculated Mrs. Bloss. A little double knock interrupted the conversation. Dr. Wosky was announced and duly shown in. He was a little man with a red face, dressed, of course, in black, with a stiff white neckerchief. He had a very good practice and plenty of money, which he had amassed by invariably humouring the worst fancies of all females, of all the families he had ever been introduced into. Mrs. Tibbs offered to retire, but was entreated to stay. "'Well, my dear ma'am, and how are we?' inquired Wosky in a soothing tone. Oh, "'Very ill, doctor, very ill,' said Mrs. Bloss in a whisper. "'Ah, we must take care of ourselves, we must indeed,' said the obsequious Wosky, as he felt the pulse of his interesting patient. "'How is our appetite?' Mrs. Bloss shook her head. "'Our friend requires great care,' said Wosky, appealing to Mrs. Tibbs, who of course assented. "'I hope, however, with the blessing of Providence, that we shall be enabled to make her quite stout again.' Mrs. Tibbs wondered in her own mind what the patient would be when she was made quite stout. "'We must take stimulants,' said the cunning Wosky. 
plenty of nourishment and above all we must keep our nerves quiet we positively must not give way to our sensibilities we must take all we can get concluded the doctor as he pocketed his fee and we must keep quiet dear man exclaimed mrs bloss as the doctor stepped into the carriage charming creature indeed quite a lady's man said mrs tibbs and dr wosky rattled away to make fresh gulls of delicate females and pocket fresh fees as we had occasion in a former paper to describe a dinner at mrs tibbs's and as one meal went off very like another on all ordinary occasions we will not fatigue our readers by entering into any other detailed accounts of the domestic economy of the establishment we will therefore proceed to events, merely premising that the mysterious tenant of the back drawing-room was a lazy, selfish hypochondriac, always complaining and never ill, as his character in many respects closely assimilated to that of Mrs. Bloss, a very warm friendship soon sprung up between them. He was tall, thin, and pale. He always fancied he had a severe pain somewhere or other and his face invariably wore a pinched, screwed-up expression. He looked, indeed, like a man who had got his feet in a tub of exceedingly hot water against his will. For two or three months after Mrs. Bloss's first appearance in Coram Street, John Evanson was observed to become every day more sarcastic and more ill-natured, and there was a degree of additional importance in his manner, which clearly showed that he fancied he had discovered something which he only wanted a proper opportunity of divulging. He found it at last. One evening the different inmates of the house were assembled in the drawing-room, engaged in their ordinary occupations. Mr. Gobbler and Mrs. Bloss were sitting at a small card-table near the centre window, playing cribbage. Mr. Wisbottle was describing semicircles on the music-stool, turning over the leaves of a book on the piano, and humming most melodiously. Alfred Tomkins was sitting at the round table, and his elbows duly squared, making a pencil sketch of a head considerably larger than his own. O'Bleary was reading Horace, and trying to look as if he understood it, and John Evanson had drawn his chair close to Mrs. Tibbs's work-table, and was talking to her very earnestly in a low tone. "'I can assure you, Mrs. Tibbs,' said the Radical, laying his forefinger on the muslin she was at work on, I can assure you, Mrs. Tibbs, that nothing but the interest I take in your welfare would induce me to make this communication. I repeat, I fear Wisbottle is endeavouring to gain the affections of that young woman, Agnes, and that he is in the habit of meeting her in the storeroom on the first floor, over the leads. From my bedroom I distinctly heard voices there last night. I opened my door immediately and crept very softly onto the landing there. I saw Mr. Tibbs, who, it seems, had been disturbed also. Oh, bless me, Mrs. Tibbs, you, you change colour. Oh, no, no, it, it's nothing, returned Mrs. T. in a hurried manner. It's only the heat of the room. A flush, ejaculated Mrs. Bloss from the card-table. That's good for four. If I thought it was Mr. Wisbottle, said Mrs. Tibbs, after a pause, he should leave this house instantly. Go, said Mrs. Bloss again, and if I thought, continued the hostess with a most threatening air, if I thought he was assisted by Mr. Tibbs. One for his knob, said Gobbler. 
Oh, said Evanson in a most soothing tone, he liked to make mischief. I should hope Mr. Tibbs was not in any way implicated. He always appeared to me very harmless. I have generally found him so, sobbed poor little Mrs. Tibbs, crying like a watering-pot. Hush, hush, pray, Mrs. Tibbs, consider. We, we shall be observed, but pray don't, said John Evanson, fearing his whole plan would be interrupted. We will set the matter at rest with the utmost care, and I shall be most happy to assist you in doing so. Mrs. Tibbs murmured her thanks. "'When you think every one has retired to rest to-night,' said Evanson very pompously, "'if you'll meet me without a light just outside my bedroom door by the staircase window, I think we can ascertain who the parties really are, and you will afterwards be enabled to proceed as you think proper.' Mrs. Tibbs was easily persuaded, her curiosity was excited, her jealousy was roused, and the arrangement was forthwith made. She resumed her work, and John Evanson walked up and down the room with his hands in his pockets, looking as if nothing had happened. The game of cribbage was over, and conversation began again. "'Well, Mr. O'Bleary,' said the humming-top, turning round on his pivot and facing the company, "'What did you think of Vauxhall the other night?' "'Oh, it's very fair,' replied Orson, who had been enthusiastically delighted with the whole exhibition. "'Never saw anything like that Captain Ross's set-out, eh?' "'No,' returned the Patriot, with his usual reservation, "'except in Dublin. "'I saw the Count de Canke and Captain Fitz Thompson in the gardens,' said Wisbottle. "'They appeared much delighted.' Oh, "'Then it must be beautiful.' snarled Evanson. "'I think the white bears is particularly well done,' suggested Mrs. Bloss. "'In their shaggy white coats they look just like polar bears. Don't you think they do, Mr. Evanson?' "'I think they look a great deal more like omnibus cads on all fours,' replied the discontented one. "'Upon the whole I should have liked our evening very well,' gasped Gobbler. Only I caught a desperate cold, which increased my pain dreadfully. I was obliged to have several shower-baths before I could leave my room. "'Capital things, those shower-baths!' ejaculated Wisbottle. "'Excellent!' said Tomkins. "'Delightful!' claimed O'Bleary. He had once seen one outside a tin-man's. "'Disgusting machines!' rejoined Evanson, who extended his dislike to almost every created object, masculine, feminine, or neuter. "'Disgusting, Mr. Evanson,' said Gobbler, in a tone of strong indignation. "'Disgusting! Look at their utility! Consider how many lives they have saved by promoting perspiration!' "'Promoting perspiration, indeed!' growled John Evanson, stopping short in his walk across the large squares in the pattern of the carpet. "'I was arse enough to be persuaded some time ago to have one in my bedroom. Gad, I was in it once, and it effectually cured me!' for the mere sight of it threw me into a profuse perspiration for six months afterwards. A titter followed the announcement, and before it had subsided, James brought up the tray, containing the remains of a leg of lamb, which had made its debut at dinner. Bread, cheese, an atom of butter in a forest of parsley, one pickled walnut, and the third of another, and so forth. The boys disappeared and returned again with another tray, containing glasses and jugs of hot and cold water. The gentlemen brought in their spirit bottles. The housemaid placed divers plated bedroom candlesticks under the card-table, and the servants retired for the night. 
Chairs were drawn around the table, and the conversation proceeded in the customary manner. John Evanson, who never ate supper, lolled on the sofa, and amused himself by contradicting everybody. O'Bleary ate as much as he could conveniently carry, and Mrs. Tibbs felt a due degree of indignation thereat. Mr. Gobbler and Mrs. Bloss conversed most affectionately on the subject of pill-taking and other innocent amusements, and Tomkins and Whispertle got into an argument. That is to say, they both talked very loudly and vehemently, each flattering himself that he had got some advantage about something, and neither of them having more than a very indistinct idea of what they were talking about. An hour or two passed away, and the boarders and their plated candlesticks retired in pairs to their respective bedrooms. John Evanson pulled off his boots, locked his door, and determined to sit up until Mr. Gobbler had retired. He always sat in the drawing-room an hour after everybody had left it, taking medicine and groaning. Great Coram Street was hushed into a state of profound repose. It was nearly two o'clock. A hackney coach now and then rumbled slowly by, and occasionally some stray lawyer's clerk on his way home to Somerstown struck his iron heel on the top of the coal cellar with a noise resembling the click of a smoke-jack. A low, monotonous, gushing sound was heard, which added considerably to the romantic dreariness of the scene. It was the water coming in at number eleven. "'He must be asleep by this time,' said John Evanson to himself, after waiting with exemplary patience for nearly an hour after Mr. Gobbler had left the drawing-room. He listened for a few moments. The house was perfectly quiet. He extinguished his rush-light and opened his bedroom door. The staircase was so dark that it was impossible to see anything. "'Shh!' whispered the mischief-maker, making a noise like the first indications a Catherine wheel gives of the probability of its going off. "'Hush!' whispered somebody else. "'Is that you, Mrs. Tibbs?' "'Yes, sir. Where?' "'Here.' And the misty outline of Mrs. Tibbs appeared at the staircase window, like the ghost of Queen Anne in the tent scene in Richard. "'This way, Mrs. Tibbs.' whispered the delighted busybody. Give me your hand. There. Whoever these people are, they're in the storeroom now. For I have been looking down from my window, and I could see that they accidentally upset their candlestick, and are now in darkness. You have no shoes on, have you? No, said little Mrs. Tibbs, who could hardly speak for trembling. Well, I have taken my boots off, so we can go down close to the storeroom and listen over the banisters and downstairs they both crept accordingly, every board creaking like patent mangle on a Saturday afternoon. "'It's Whistbottle and somebody else, I swear!' exclaimed the radical, in an energetic whisper, when they had listened for a few moments. "'Hush! Pray, let's hear what they say!' exclaimed Mrs. Tibbs, the gratification of whose curiosity was now paramount to every other consideration. "'Ah, oh, if I could but believe you!' said a female voice coquettishly. "'I'd be bound to settle my missus for life.' "'What did she say?' inquired Mr. Evanson, who was not quite so well situated as his companion. "'She says she'll settle her missus' life,' replied Mrs. Tibbs. "'The wretch! They're plotting murder!' "'I know you want money,' continued the voice, which belonged to Agnes. "'And if you'd secure me the five hundred pound, I warrant she'd take fire soon enough.' "'What's that?' inquired Evanson again. He could just hear enough to want to hear more. "'I think she says she'll set the house on fire,' 
replied the affrighted Mrs. Tibbs. But thank goodness I'm insured in the Phoenix. The moment I have secured your mistress, my dear, said a man's voice in a strong Irish brogue, you may depend on having the money. Oh, bless my soul, it's Mr. O'Bleary, exclaimed Mrs. Tibbs in a parenthesis. The villain, said the indignant Mr. Evanson. The first thing to be done, continued the Hibernian, is to poison Mr. Gobbler's mind. Oh, certainly, returned Agnes. What's that? inquired Evanson again in an agony of curiosity and a whisper. He says she's to mind and poison Mr. Gobbler, replied Mrs. Tibbs, aghast at this sacrifice of human life. And in regard of Mrs. Tibbs, continued O'Bleary, Mrs. Tibbs shuddered. Hush! exclaimed Agnes, and in a tone of the greatest alarm, just as Mrs. Tibbs was on the extreme verge of a fainting fit. Hush! Hush! exclaimed Evanson at the same moment to Mrs. Tibbs. "'There's somebody coming upstairs,' said Agnes to O'Bleary. "'There's somebody coming downstairs,' whispered Evanson to Mrs. Tibbs. "'Go into the parlour, sir,' said Agnes to her companion. "'You'll get there before whoever it is gets to the top of the kitchen stairs.' "'The drawing-room, Mrs. Tibbs,' whispered the astonished Evanson to his equally astonished companion, and for the drawing-room they both made plainly hearing the rustling of two persons, one coming downstairs and one coming up. "'What can it be?' exclaimed Mrs. Tibbs. "'It's like a dream. I wouldn't be found in this situation for the world.' "'Nor I,' returned Evanson, who could never bear a joke at his own expense. "'Hush! Here they are at the door.' "'What fun!' whispered one of the newcomers. It was Wispottle. "'Glorious!' replied his companion in an equally low tone. This was Alfred Tomkins.' "'Who would have thought it?' "'I told you so,' said Wispottle, in a low-knowing whisper. "'Lord bless you. He has paid her most extraordinary attention for the last two months. I saw him when I was sitting at the piano to-night.' "'Well, do you know I didn't notice it?' interrupted Tomkins. "'Not notice it?' continued Wispottle. "'Bless you, I saw him whispering to her, and she crying, and then I swear I heard him say something about to-night when we were all in bed.' "'They're talking of us!' exclaimed the agonized Mrs. Tibbs, as the painful suspicion and the sense of their situation flashed upon her mind. "'I know it, I know it,' replied Evanson, with a melancholy consciousness that there was no mode of escape. "'What can be done? We cannot both stop here,' ejaculated Mrs. Tibbs, in a state of partial derangement. "'I'll uh, get up the chimney,' replied Evanson, who really meant what he said." "'You can't,' said Mrs. Tibbs, in despair. "'You can't. It's a register stove.' "'Hush!' repeated John Everson. "'Hush! Hush!' cried somebody downstairs. "'What a d-d-hushing!' said Alfred Tomkins, who had begun to get rather bewildered. "'There they are!' exclaimed the sapient Wispottle, as a rustling noise was heard in the storeroom. "'Hark!' whispered both the young men. "'Hark!' repeated Mrs. Tibbs and Everson. "'Let me alone, sir,' said a female voice in the storeroom. "'Oh, Agnes!' cried another voice, which clearly belonged to Tibbs, for nobody else ever owned one like it. "'Oh, Agnes, lovely creature! Be quiet, sir!' A bounce. "'Hag! Be quiet, sir! I'm ashamed of you. Think of your wife, Mr. Tibbs. Be quiet, sir!' "'My wife!' exclaimed the valorious Tibbs, who was clearly under the influence of gin and water and a misplaced attachment. "'I hate her! Oh, Agnes!' When I was in the volunteer corps in eighteen hundred and—I declare I'll scream. Be quiet, sir, will you? Another bounce and a scuffle. 
What's that? exclaimed Tibbs with a start. What's that? said Agnes, stopping short. Why that? Ah, oh, you have done it nicely now, sir, sobbed the frightened Agnes, as a tapping was heard at Mrs. Tibbs's bedroom door, which would have beaten any dozen woodpeckers hollow. Mrs. Tibbs, Mrs. Tibbs, called out Mrs. Bloss. Mrs. Tibbs, pray get up. Here the imitation of a woodpecker was resumed with tenfold violence. Oh, dear, dear, exclaimed the wretched partner of the depraved Tibbs. She's knocking at my door. We must be discovered. What will they think? Mrs. Tibbs, Mrs. Tibbs, screamed the woodpecker again. What's the matter? shouted Gobbler, bursting out of the back drawing-room like the dragon at Astley's. Oh, Mr. Gobbler! cried Mrs. Bloss, with a proper approximation to hysterics. I think the house is on fire, or else there's thieves in it. I've heard the most dreadful noises. The devil you have! shouted Gobbler again, bouncing back into his den in happy imitation of the aforesaid dragon, and returning immediately with a lighted candle. Why, what's this? Whist-bottle! Tomkins, oh, bleary Agnes! What the deuce! All up and dressed! Astonishing! said Mrs. Bloss, who had run downstairs and taken Mr. Gobbler's arm. "'Call Mrs. Tibbs directly, somebody,' said Gobbler, turning into the front drawing-room. "'What? Mrs. Tibbs and Mr. Evanson? Mrs. Tibbs and Mr. Evanson?' repeated everybody as the unhappy pair were discovered, Mrs. Tibbs seated in an armchair by the fireplace, and Mr. Evanson standing by her side." We must leave the scene that ensued to the reader's imagination. We could tell you how Mrs. Tibbs forthwith fainted away, and how it required the united strength of Mr. Wisbottle and Mr. Alfred Tonkins to hold her in her chair, how Mr. Evanson explained, and how his explanation was evidently disbelieved, how Agnes repelled the accusations of Mrs. Tibbs by proving that she was negotiating with Mr. O'Bleary to influence her mistress's affection on his behalf, and how Mr. Gobbler threw a damp counterpane on the hopes of Mr. O'Bleary by avowing that he, Gobbler, had already proposed to and been accepted by Mrs. Bloss. How Agnes was discharged from the lady's service, how Mr. O'Bleary discharged himself from Mrs. Tibbs's house, without going through the form of previously discharging his bill, and how that disappointed young gentleman rails against England and the English, and vows there is no virtue or fine feeling extant, except in Ireland. We repeat that we could tell all this, but we love to exercise our self-denial, and we therefore prefer leaving it to be imagined. The lady whom we have hitherto described as Mrs. Bloss is no more. Mrs. Gobbler exists. Mrs. Bloss has left us forever. In a secluded retreat in Newington Butts, far, far removed from the noisy strife of that great boarding-house, the world, the enviable Gobbler, and his pleasing wife revel in retirement, happy in their complaints, their table, and their medicine, wafted through life by the grateful prayers of all the purveyors of animal food, within three miles round. We would willingly stop here, but we have a painful duty imposed upon us which we must discharge. Mr. and Mrs. Tibbs have separated by mutual consent, Mrs. Tibbs receiving one moiety of forty-three pounds, fifteen shillings, and tenpence, which we before stated to be the amount of her husband's annual income, and Mr. Tibbs the other. 
He is spending the evening of his days in retirement, and he is spending also annually that small but honourable independence. He resides among the original settlers at Walworth, and it has been stated, on unquestionable authority, that the conclusion of the volunteer story has been heard in a small tavern in that respectable neighbourhood. The unfortunate Mrs. Tibbs has determined to dispose of the whole of her furniture by public auction, and to retire from a residence in which she has suffered so much. Mr. Robbins has been applied to to conduct the sale, and the transcendent abilities of the literary gentleman connected with his establishment are now devoted to the task of drawing up the preliminary advertisement. It is to contain, among a variety of brilliant matter, seventy-eight words in large capitals, and six original questions in inverted commas. End of chapter 1, part 2 of Tales from Sketches by Boz by Charles Dickens Recording by David Lazarus